Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn in the book of Judges to Judges chapter 6. Judges is one of the early books in the Bible. It's on page 205 in one of these pew Bibles. I want to bring two messages uh, this Sunday and next Sunday about Gideon and people God uses. And we are introduced to him here in Judges chapter 6. I'll begin reading in verse 1 down to about verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell But you have not obeyed my voice. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Now what I'd like to do is go through much more of the chapter, but I will pick a few verses as we go along. And as I tell you about God's calling Gideon, I'll read those as we get to them. I'm getting over strep throat, and I'm a few days away from hopefully being all well, so I'll speak at a lower volume. There was a book that was written a number of years ago by Rebecca Pippert. It's looked back at now as one of the landmark books on the work of personal evangelism and how to share your faith with others as a way of life. The title of the book, and I know many of you here have read it because I've heard you refer to it, was Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And she had this to say about the miracle of a person being converted. She said all stories of conversion are different. Some conversions are dramatic, others quiet. Some people respond out of crisis, others in calm. But the common element in every story is that one way or another, God reaches us. He comes through. He does not abandon us. She goes on to say, in the more than 30 years I have been a Christian, I have seen many people turn their lives over to God and be changed. And yet the awesome mystery of conversion never fails to move me. The miracle of conversion is the greatest miracle. Those are the words of Rebecca Pippert. God will often bring you to the point of seeing your need for him in order for you to cry out to him. There is nothing wrong with seeking the Lord when you are desperate. In fact, desperation is a fine time to call out to the Lord for help. Often when we experience the results and even the damage of our own sin, 
that prompts us to call out to him and becomes the stimulus to bring us to our own senses. And this is exactly what is happening in Judges chapter 6. The scene is ancient Israel in a part of the world we are hearing about every day now in the news with Gaza. Each year Israel would prepare their fields, they would plant their seeds, they would await the harvest of their crops. And right when the crops, after all that time and all that work, right when the crops were ready to be cut and the cattle were fattened, that is when the enemies of Israel, the Midianites and the Amalekites and others, that is when they would pour across the borders, tens of thousands of them, riding on camels, carrying every kind of military weapon that was available at that time. And the Israelites simply were no match, and all they could do is take to the hills, while the Midianites came and stole everything they wanted and then went home. This has gone on now. By the time we come to Judges chapter 6, this has gone on for at least seven years. Imagine Seven years of no harvest or very little. And the morale in Israel is at an all-time low. As a result of the impoverishment brought on by this, verse 6 tells us the people of Israel cry out to God for help. So God answers, and we see the beginning of his answer when he shows his mercy through a prophet. We read verses 7 to 10. It said they cried for help, and God heard their cries, and he sends relief, and he sends a prophet to them. Now, why did God send a prophet? If you back up and look at that for a moment, it seems like a mismatch. It's kind of like you're driving on the interstate, and your car breaks down, and you call AAA, and they say, we'll send an accountant right out. I don't need an accountant. I need a mechanic. Israel was trying out for deliverance. Why would God send them a prophet? We don't need a preacher. We need someone to deliver us. We need a general. We need someone, something else. The reason God sent them a prophet was because they needed something more than immediate relief. They needed to understand why they were being oppressed. They knew what had happened, but they had not connected why it had happened. They wanted relief, but what they really needed was repentance and to turn back to God. And so as we just read the message of the prophet, and I'll summarize it again in verses 8 and 9, the prophet preaches to them, he speaks to them, he reminds them of the great things that God had done for them in the past. Then in verse 10, he reminded them of God's simple command, not to worship the gods of the foreigners, but to worship and to serve him. A very simple command, not complicated. And then in verse 10, he points out that they had not done that. They had rebelled against God. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. This is a testimony to God's grace. This has gone on for years now. And God could have punished them. God could have destroyed them. But he delivers them again and again when he has every right to punish. He elects to save. That's the nature of covenant love. That's the nature of the gospel today, the good news of Christ. Some of you here, perhaps, in a crowd this size, I would imagine, have heard the message of forgiveness through God's Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. You've heard that over and over and over. You could probably stand up here and give 75% of what I could say from this pulpit. But so far, you have not chosen to believe. 
You have not put your trust in Christ as your Redeemer. You have not sought to have your sins forgiven through him. Either maybe you don't see your need or you just have other things you want to do. You know what that is? That is God's covenant mercy to allow you to hear the invitation again and again. What is that invitation again? That you and I are born sinners in this world. That we may look fine to other people around us, but we have a heart problem. The internal problem is we have sinned against God. And God says the wages or the payment or the result of sin is death. And he could have left us in that state of spiritual death and punishment. But he promised a redeemer uh, centuries ago, thousands of years ago, we find the initial promise right in the opening chapters of Genesis that God would send a substitute, a redeemer. And that was the Lord Jesus born 2,000 years ago. And he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And then he allowed himself to be arrested and to be crucified on a Roman cross while he was on the cross. Cross, God placed our sin on him and punished him in my place. And he fully paid for that sin. And he died. He had to die. For that was part of the punishment, to make the full payment. Three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that he was victorious over sin and over death. He appeared to more than 500 of his followers over a 40-day period. And then the last command he gave to his disciples was to go into all the world and to make disciples, telling people, preaching this message that you're hearing now and telling them how they can be forgiven of sin and have new life and the promise of heaven. Then he ascended into heaven, and even today he sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us this very moment. That is the message of the gospel. We receive that by faith, by faith recognizing he died in my place. By faith, I have a sin problem. By faith, I believe it was forgiven through Jesus. By faith, he makes me a new person. By faith, I have the promise of heaven, not by my works, but only by his. That's the message of the gospel. The fact that it has gone out again right now is a demonstration of the mercy of God, even like when that prophet came that he sent in Judges chapter 6. So he comes, this prophet comes, and he preaches this. And basically it's saying it's not too late. Then the scene shifts. The camera shifts over in verse 11, and we meet a, now a person, and his name is Gideon. Um, I'll read some of the verses. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth that Ophrah, which belonged to Joash. Joash is Gideon's father. That's important. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now I want you to see how God shows his mercy through the least likely. We learn here that Gideon is in hiding. He is threshing this wheat in a wine press. A small area as opposed to a threshing floor. Those were huge and they were immovable and the Midianites could locate things like threshing floors. But he's in hiding. He's doing this in secret so they won't see him. And he is disillusioned with God and his promises. When the angel says to him, you know, great warrior and God is with you, he basically says, God isn't with us. God's forsaken us. Y'all have small children or grandchildren and never notice 
ever notice how they will say things that everyone else is thinking and you panic when they, these things start coming out of their mouths at odd times. You take them to eat at a friend's house and they're sitting at the table and they say, why does this food taste funny? It smells bad in here. And you're like, don't say that. Don't say that. Well, children often haven't learned yet that you can think it, just don't say it in certain circumstances. Well, Gideon says it. Says it back to the one who said the Lord is with you. He said, he's not with us. He's forsaken us. Then in verse 15, he mentions his family lineage. He says, uh, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So his family is the least in the, in the tribe of Manasseh. And so he's not from a tribe. He's not from a family that's a powerful, influential family. And what's worse, he's the youngest in his father's house. In those days, if you were fourth or fifth down the family line, you would be expected to serve the older. You would get nothing from the family legacy. Only the firstborn could anticipate being significant in that world. The youngest was the least significant. And guess who the youngest was? It was Gideon, this disillusioned youngster. We see right here with this call that God rarely chooses the brightest and the best people to accomplish his will. He rarely chooses the brightest and the best. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he chooses someone who would be a king like a David or a Solomon, or sometimes he chose a wealthy man like Abraham or a brilliant man like the Apostle Paul. But typically, the Lord sees fit to carry out his will through unlikely people, those who are least and not exceptional. When the Apostle Paul wrote to his Christian brothers and sisters in the city of Corinth, In describing them, and it doesn't sound too flattering, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. There are not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. He was talking about them. Foolish things to shame those things which are strong. Look, I like you guys. I really do. We come to church here on our vacation time. But I realize we're basically ordinary people. No one is going to be waiting after the service to sign you to a book deal to give your biography or your life story. There, I don't recall ever seeing a television camera here to interview someone here or get your opinion because it's so important or you're so bright. I don't pick up international magazines and see interviews with people here. In our church, we are just ordinary people. But that is not a limitation in God's sight. And that's what we're seeing here with Gideon. And most of us, we also see, use a faulty arithmetic formula in determining whom God will use. We think, as we add up our lives, well, I've got these limitations, I've got these mistakes, I've got these sins that I've committed, I've got all this messed up family background, and when I add that up, that means God can't use me. And we think, well, the only formula that works for God is he takes our great abilities and our wonderful experience and all our training, and we add that up, and then God can obviously use us. Well, here's God's formula. Okay, he's got a different math formula. My weakness plus my willingness means God can use it. Is that when we see our weaknesses, but we're willing to serve him, 
we see in the Bible that typically is the type of person he uses. And that which we think disqualifies us from his service, in fact, is what qualifies us for his service. Remember in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, God tells Moses he's going to bring his people out of Egypt. What does Moses say? I can't lead these people. I am slow of speech. Either he had strep throat all the time or he had, he had some kind of speech impediment. But speaking and leading and challenging and moving the masses obviously did not come natural to him. 2 Corinthians says, my power is perfected in weakness. What kind of weakness? You and me, our kind of weakness. So what does God offer to Gideon as a solution of his situation in life? Little known tribe, way down the family lineage. It says in verse 16, I will be with you. And you shall defeat Midian as one man. If you feel that God can't use you, if you're keenly aware of your own weaknesses and you assume they render you ineffective to God, you have the same promise, but only more so from the book of John. I will never leave you or forsake you, Christ says. The same God who is with Gideon is with you. Now he teaches Gideon to worship. In verses 17 to 30, 24, 17 to 24, I'm not going to read it all, but he, uh, he has him do some things and to prepare this altar where he will worship and prepare this meal and so forth for the angel messenger who's there. And I just want you to notice this, that God, right off the bat, in calling Gideon to serve, is teaching him to worship. That's where all service starts. Worship means, literally means, worth-ship. It means recognizing God's worth as we pray to him, as we think about him, as we adore him, as we give him thanks. I am worshiping God for who he is, that he is worthy of this. And he builds this altar that God tells him. And it wasn't a one-time thing. We assume Gideon came back to that altar every day. Every day he came back there to worship God. That is where service to God begins. It's not just corporate worship. On the Lord's Day, one day a week, as important as that is, and it is important, it's daily worship, as Romans 12 says, that each day we present ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual act of worship. Are you a person who worships God? Do you want to see God use you? That is where service begins. It is with worshiping God. And then we see in verses 25 to 27 that God enables Gideon to take a stand in the midst of spiritual compromise. Look at 25 to 27, and I'll read it. That night, this is after he made that altar in verse 24, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, and stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering, and the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants, did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now his father's house... Right there, smack dab in the middle of his father's property and in the middle of his father's life was this altar dedicated to the pagan god called Baal. 
And apparently, it was seen every day as you came and as you went. And with your family, there's this altar. So in verse 24, God has Gideon build an altar to him, to Yahweh, to God worship. But that's not enough, so he tells him, not only are you going to build a new one, you're going to tear down the old ones. Why such a demand? Because two altars cannot coexist. Not with Gideon, not with Israel, not with you, and not with me. You cannot have an altar to Baal and an altar to Yahweh. They are mutually exclusive. Now, in America, we have two words that I think we very much confuse. Syncretism and pluralism. Syncretism, if you think of synchronized gears that mesh together, Syncretism and pluralism are not the same things, but people confuse them all the time. We talk about religion in America being pluralistic, that we're a, we are a pluralistic society. We have a variety of religions and worldviews. So you've got Christianity, you've got Judaism, you've got Hinduism, you've got Islam, and many, 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 many others. And ideally, if we're truly pluralistic, you would say, in this country, all are treated the same, Everybody's on the pl- same playing field. You, 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 you teach your distinctives, you teach your distinctives, you teach your distinctives. And so it's like a big, a big buffet table. And each plate is a different worldview, different religion. And you'd say, here we are, this is America, this is pluralistic. Syncretism is different. And this, is though, is what people think when they say they're pluralistic. They're really being syncretistic. And that is... In syncretism, the idea is, let's do away with the distinctives. Let's just mesh them all together. And so in syncretism, you take all the food on all the plates, and you put it in a big food processor, and then you put it back on the plates. And so you end up with this, what John Kinzer calls the American folk religion. We talk about God, but we don't get specific. We pray, but it's very generic. We don't want to do anything to press distinctives or to offend someone else who's on a different plate. The Bible says God hates syncretism. That you cannot serve both God and mammon. That here he says you cannot serve Baal and Yahweh. And in our day, it's it's, uh, every week as a pastor, I see it. Someone will say, oh, I'm serving Christ. Christ is my Lord. And yet their life is so committed to so many things opposed to that. It's kind of like this. As a pastor here, I've led many, many weddings through the years and from the front of this sanctuary. And I think what we try to do today would be like this. That here on an evening, I did a wedding just the other night. And here's the groom standing here next to me, and I'm waiting, and the, the dad brings the bride down the aisle. And here she comes. And now, if it was like Gideon's day, she'd get down here with her father, and, oh, lo and behold, behind the, the groom... There's 12 other women. And she says, who are they? He said, oh, these are all my girlfriends. That's Susan there and that's Sally there. What are they doing here? Well, I'm bringing them with us. They're part of my life. I mean, I like you all. You'll fit right in. Y'all will all get along real well. And what would the bride say? No way. You know, you're not marrying me and keeping them. That's exactly what God was telling Gideon. He was saying, you just can't marry me, Israel. See, this was representative for the whole nation. He's saying, you've got to tear down the altar of Baal. Let's go back to the command. Remember the angel had said, 
The only command I've given is do not worship the gods of the foreigners, of the Amalekites. That was the only command. And that's the one he says, we're going to start right back with lesson number one, to do away with them. So that's pluralism and syncretism. So God places this demand on Gideon, and it's meant for a model for Israel. In my own testimony, when I first understood the gospel as a young junior high student, I, so, I didn't doubt it. I believed it. It made perfect sense to me. I wanted the forgiveness of sins. I just didn't want to repent of those sins. I enjoyed the pagan lifestyle. I could have lived in Corinth with ease. And I, I, and I, tried, I tried to keep my feet in both world, worlds, and I could not do it. I wanted faith without repentance. Uh, and I want to be syncretistic. I want to say, Lord, you're my Lord, but boy, I have too much fun over here doing this stuff that you say I shouldn't do. You can't do it. Faith and repentance come together. When we turn to God, when we turn to Christ in faith, we are turning away from other things. It's not our own works. It's not our own effort. But they come as a package, faith and repentance. So he does what God says. He goes and he tears down the... uh, He not only builds a new altar in verse 24, verse 25, he gets these ten other guys, they go and they tear down these altars. And now we come to one of the most classic verses in the whole Bible. Uh, Let's see, I think it's... uh, 28. Oh, I know. It's on down in verse 31. The men come to Joash, you know, in verse 30, and they say, bring out your son. He may die. We're going to kill him. He's broken down the altar of Baal. Cut down the Asherah beside it. And I love what Joash said. He said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, here's, here's the verse. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. <laughs> Y'all don't see the humor of this, do you? They are saying, where is your son? He tore down our great altar to our great God. And you know what Joash says? Can't your God take care of his own altar? That's what he's saying. He can take care of himself if he's really a God. He's stating the obvious. I think the best way to do apologetics to defend the faith today is listen to what people are saying and ask them questions to really make them think about what they are saying and how often it doesn't make sense. And their worldviews are not consistent today. We know bits and pieces, but they're not all fit together like pieces of a puzzle. Let me give you an example. Back from Rebecca Pippert's book. She said that back in college, she took a biology course, and every day the professor would explain and promote his philosophy. And it was a very popular one still today. Here is what the professor would say in the biology class. Man is merely a fortuitous concourse of atoms, a meaningless piece of protoplasm in an absurd world. She said, we were taught that having deep regard for random products of the universe where chance is king is inconsistent. It is inconsistent to be concerned about man when he is nothing but a mass of protoplasm. What makes him any different from a dog or anything else? He taught that day after day. One day, the professor came into class terribly depressed because his own 13-year-old daughter had run away with an older man. And he said before the class, she will be deeply wounded. She will scar, and I cannot do anything to help. I must sit back and watch a tragedy. 
And when he finished speaking, a young student, a girl, raised her hand and quietly said, according to your system, protoplasm cannot scar. And his answer was devastating. He said, touche. I could never regard my daughter as a set of chemicals. Never. I cannot take my beliefs that far. This class is dismissed. See, that shows the ineffectiveness of such reason and thinking. And that is what Joash is doing. He takes their view of their God and says, if he's so powerful, let him take care of himself. If he is real, he can do it. Last of all, and I'm out of time. The deacons are going to be mad if something's getting cold back there. All right. Note how God helps Gideon to deal with his doubts. Now let me just I'll give you an overview. In verses 33 to 40, we have the case where Gideon, in his doubts, asked God to prove himself, basically. And he wants to be assured of God's promises, so he literally puts out this fleece. He asks God to grant the sign of the wet fleece and the dry ground, and then he asks for the reverse of that. It's often the case that when this passage is taught, then Gideon gets a pretty fair amount of criticism for this action, as though he was testing God in some way. Well, it's my opinion, and I probably, well, not, I, th- I may be wrong, I don't think he's testing God. I think this is the hesitancy of his faith. It's not the absence of faith. He's just tentative, as you and I would be. Look what he's up against and what God's calling him to do. And so rather than charge Gideon with sin for asking for their sign, I think we need to see maybe that it gave God an opportunity, so to speak, to stoop down to Gideon's level to show his mercy to him. Let me explain what I mean. A few years ago, my daughter and I were in Kroger in May. You know what May in Macon means? Tornadoes or tornado warnings and watches. And sure enough, on this late afternoon, the warnings were going off. So the usher, they announced in the store, everybody has to go back to this warehouse area in the back. So they herded us all into this concrete area with no windows while the sirens were going off outside, and we didn't know how serious it was. In fact, a tornado did come down not far from there, less than a mile from there that, that day. And there were lots of moms and some other dads with little kids back there. And the kids were very unnerved. We adults probably were too, but we didn't act like it. But the kids were crying, a number of them, and whimpering. And I remember sitting there with my daughter and looking over, and there were a couple of little toddler sitting in their mom's lap crying and wondering, is we, are we getting ready? Is something bad going to happen to us? You know, what's going on? They were, And you know what I never heard in that 30 minutes or so we were in there? I, I never heard any parent scolding their child. Listen, you just need to man up. You, know, if you're, if you just need to act strong. Don't shed a tear in here. Why are you worried? It wasn't anything like that. It was words of encouragement. It's going to be okay. We're all right. We're safe. Look, you're here with me. You, you just, just, it's okay. That's, that's God. You know, we come to him in our doubts and our fears, just like Gideon did about this, and we don't hear this as well. If you, Gideon, uh, how many times have I told you over? And if you really, we don't see that. We see God humbling himself to encourage Gideon that he's patient with our weaknesses, and he doesn't mind humbling himself to strengthen and encourage us when our faith is fragile. 
In fact, he's eager to do so. And so, as we'll continue next week, the Lord willing, with what happens with Gideon, God uses Gideon to deliver his people. And we find that Gideon is a very imperfect man. Our deliverer that Gideon foreshadowed was Jesus. He is the perfect deliverer, the perfect one. God did not have to send him, but he did it out of love. He did it out of love, and love will motivate someone to do something that nothing else will. This past week was Veterans Day. On Monday, as you know, there were lots of events around the country honoring our veterans. Perhaps you read about the tragedy that happened at one of those on Wednesday in Midland, Texas. If you didn't, there was a train. Train was, I mean, a parade, a parade with floats. It was part of a bigger event that was going to take place, showing support for veterans and their spouses. And something very bizarre happened that day that is still they're, they're trying to sort out. This long parade comes across a railroad crossing, and when the next to the last float is at the crossing, suddenly, suddenly, they said with no warning, the lights began to flash, and a train that must have been going at a high speed comes out of nowhere. They said there was no, eyewitnesses said there was no room or time to react. The last float made it, the next to the last float made it, but the last one had 24 veterans and their wives. One of the vets was a retired Army Sergeant Joshua Michael and his wife. There was also retired Army Sergeant Lawrence Bovine. Both of these men, at the last moment, pushed their wives to safety. Both of those men, along with two others, were killed by that train. I sat and I read that two days ago, and I thought, what would motivate a man to do that. Oh, we think that, you know, listen to the marriage vows, you know, and you know, I hope as a dad or as a husband I would do the same. But that's love. There was Joshua Michael with two purple hearts from past service as a vet, saving their wives' lives at the last possible moment. Love will do things that legalism and force will never do. And that's what God shows us through Christ is an expression of his love. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that we cannot force ourselves or others to make ultimate sacrifices, but only love can inspire such. Thank you for the Lord Jesus that who through him we can be right with you. We can be at peace with others. We pray that our trust would be in him. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn to the last page of your worship folder, you have the words of the doxology. Let's stand and um, be dismissed with the benediction. This is a blessing from God himself. And then I want to say a blessing before we sing the doxology. It'll be our prayer for the food, okay? Receive God's benediction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the food that you are providing for us now. We ask your blessing at the table as we fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all bless.